Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today with the man himself, Mr. Jason Lowry. Uh, Jason, you have been quite the new celebrity in the sphere of Bitcoin Twitter. Um, by way of introduction, Jason is an officer in the U.S. Space Force. He's an astronautical engineer, and he's studying national strategic implications of Bitcoin at MIT. Uh, Jason, man, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. I'm a huge fanboy. I've been following your writing since well before the number zero. Um, big fan. Thank you so much, dude. I'm really honored. And I it's just unreal or surreal to me to see that writing kind of percolating up into the thinking of others. Um, you know, yourself included, because I'm just, I'm so impressed with the way you look at Bitcoin. Um, and you've, what started for me with this energetic perspective on Bitcoin and speaking with Sailor in our initial series, you've taken that to like another level. Um, so that was one level of my mind being blown. And this feels like kind of the compounding effect of that. So I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, and, you know, as is the nature of this show, we're going to try to go, try to go deep, get down to some conceptual bedrock, first principles, whatever you want to call it. Um, so maybe you know, I would like. I think the purpose of this particular conversation is just to try to lay some groundwork because we're going to be talking about a lot of abstract concepts uh, and you know, alternative views of a future on in a Bitcoin world. So I think it's really important to get definitions square okay. um, to, to build that. So as I was saying to you offline, it's my understanding that your thesis is really embedded in physics. You're really coming from the ultimate first principles of physical reality insofar as humans currently understand them. Um, maybe I could just turn it over to you to explain that a little bit, unpack why you're doing that and uh, the floor is yours. Sure. So what is physics? Physics is trying to understand the structure of how the universe works. You take uh, the study of structure itself, which is math, and then you try to use that math to explain the phenomenon that you can observe around you. And if you use first principles, it tends to help you kind of uncover the structure better than if you try to approach the same problem from a different line of, uh, of thinking. So that's the value of first principles. The reason why I focus so hard on that for the angle that I take to explain the primary value delivered function of Bitcoin is because mine is, uh, you know, related to the theory of warfare, the theory of what is effectively violence. And that um, has a lot of like baked in emotion uh, that, you know, understandably. So if you want to filter all of that emotion out and just get into an objective, as close to an objective way of understanding how this game works and what it's good for, 
do it from first principles because physics is completely blind to morals. Physics is blind to um, feelings. <laughs> physics is, you know, nature is, is blind to both of those things. So if you can explain how the value of Bitcoin, the value of warfare itself through physics, then maybe you can fully appreciate Bitcoin as an extension of those things. But more importantly, you can appreciate the complex emergent property of a civilization adopting Bitcoin, which in my opinion, far exceeds just having supply capped money. Mm -hmm. And so that was my journey into studying Bitcoin. And I just want to share that with people and also, and especially my superiors. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's interesting. It calls to mind here the that statue, you know, the scales of justice. Whereas, you know, justice is blind. She's got the blindfold on, yet she's holding the you know, presumably honest scale that's weighing uh, weighing things. And so that, I mean, that is a, I guess physics is, is blind as well, right? Physics is just what it is, like whatever the math are mapping. We're mapping reality in a high resolution way through mathematics, explaining physical phenomena such that we can, and it's very interesting. Like I, physics is one of my favorite subjects in college. Just the idea that we can peer through time, you know, using a formula for yeah. something as simple as throwing a baseball, like you know where it's going to land, yeah. you know the arc and all that. So, unlike uh, unlike economics, right? Like it actually works. Like yeah. people <laughs> people take, you know, like they'll take a math equation to try to describe physical phenomenon, and using that math equation, they'll land a human being on the moon. Yes. You take the same math to try to explain some economic phenomenon. And Paul Kruger is sitting there <laughs> explaining why he didn't get the inflation thing right. The like, internet you is just a get fax a bunch machine. Of, yeah, like, right. Like you just get a bunch of people. Oh well, the reason why this didn't quite work. Yeah. So that's like all like that's why I loved engineering in general, in physics in general, and math in general. Like that's why I studied it in college is because there's less room for error, I guess, or like there's yeah. less room for BS. Yeah. You know, you, a math equation is like a, you know, you either get it correct or you don't, there's no right. like weaseling your way out of, and, and what I love about engineering specifically is like, yeah, you have all these like math snobs and they're, they're, they're great people. You have all these in, physicists, right. And they can master the study of structure and they can master how to explain the complex phenomenon of physics, but all of that is only useful insofar as you can like put it to work. Like, mm -hmm. okay, cool. You figure out linear algebra. What can we do with it? Mm -hmm. You figured out calculus. What can we do with it? You figured out all these things. Let's actually like use these equations to build a better future. And, and like MIT understands this really well. Their philosophy is mens et manus, which means mind, and hand like mm. yeah we can have a lot of smart brains out there that can conceptualize physical phenomenon and mathematical phenomenon but like put it to use like you know let's get practical 
yeah. make the assumptions, figure out how to put people on the moon with this. So yeah, I love engineering. I love all that stuff. Yeah. And we're already jumping to, I think some really interesting points here because so in physics engineering, we're dealing with, there are constants in reality that we can discover and then we can build formulas around, right? Like E equals MC squared, um, force equals mass times acceleration, you know, these, the, and those do not exist in the social sciences. Although we have this Keynesian economic body where it's trying to f- f- uh, create formulas as if there were constants in the sphere of human action, but there simply aren't. So there's a physics envy. Actually, physics has made us so powerful, math and physics combined, that we're trying to emulate that in other sciences where it's not relevant even. And this is where I think it's really interesting with, so maybe one thing there is like, when you have constants, as you said, we don't need to trust an individual's opinion. We can verify, right? You can verify mathematically that some of these constants or formulas work or exist. And Bitcoin's interesting because it's like, what is this thing? This is like perhaps the first constant in the sphere of economics, or we've somehow connected the social sciences into the physical sciences. Um, yeah. Is that I one mean, way to think about it? To quote someone that I think is pretty brilliant, like Bitcoin is the number zero of economics, right? <laughs> like we've discovered a constant. At the end of the day, like Fundamentally speaking, the difference between physics and economics is a bunch of people trying to use math equations to describe what they can observe. Yeah. The, the difference is we still use equations invented by people 400 years ago because they work and they keep working. Right. And we can validate they work and we observe they work. And you don't do that with economics because they stop working or maybe they only work under impractical assumptions and yeah, I think there would be an envy there. And it's important, it's important to understand this because like, you know, you get the, it's uh, what's the word? Epistemological, Yeah. The, you know, the theory of knowledge itself, right? Like you get these people that become disingenuous. You get the, you know, Taleb's out there who wield their math to describe what they can observe and then pretend like because it's math, because math is basically mm. inarguable. Math is math. Math is mm. the study of structure. Math is structure itself. They like try to imply that just, you know, because I can make a math equation, I must be right. Mm-hmm. And because I know more about math than you do. But, you know, baked into those equations are a whole bunch of assumptions that haven't been tested. Mm-hmm. In physics, you test those assumptions and there's been a lot of people who have come up with physical equations that are, don't work. They break. Right. Even New- even Newtonian mechanics don't work in every yes. case. But at a macro level, they're pretty damn effective. You can send people to the moon based off of just like, you know, Newton and Kepler, what they yeah. came up with. Yeah. Um, Planck and a couple of others. So, yeah, it's important to note that it's just people trying to describe what they can observe with math. Math is awesome. Math is pretty inarguable. But the manner in which they wield that, it can be disingenuous. It's important for people to understand the distinction between the two and recognize the BS if it emerges. Yes. Yeah, no, excellent point there. Um, You know, 
what's jumping out at me here is this the language we're already using, right? We're, we're saying if it works, it's kept, right? This is evolution in a nutshell. Whatever works survives or is kept. Yeah. So <laughs> begs the question, what is work? <laughs> yeah. Um, that survivorship bias is pretty interesting. And the, the question of evolution itself is pretty much all I want to talk to you right now about. Mm. Um, like we can, we can trace this all the way back to the beginning of life and you can, well, let's do it. So, you know, the universe is 13 ish, 12.8 ish billion years old. Life itself is around 4 billion years old. So like a third of the existence of the universe, there's been life on earth. We're actually like pretty late bloomers too. Because like for the first 2 billion years, for the first half of life's existence, we were just a, what is effectively a soup, a primordial mm -hmm. soup of bacteria. Mm -hmm. By the way, there's like a million trillion more bacteria than there are stars in the Milky Way. So like it's pretty massive, complex world uh, that existed even four billion to two billion years ago. And if you want to like study the practice of people experimenting with stuff to figure out what works, study biology. That is all biology is. It's just life figuring out what works and what scales. Yeah. And to quote you again, uh, technology is just non-biological evolution. <laughs> it's the same game. It's just, in this case, humans use it, but we're not the only animals that use technology. Other animals use sticks and stuff. Yeah. So, so if you go back to like World War One, I'm not talking about like 1917. I'm talking about four billion years ago. Mm -hmm. World War One was a bloodbath. World War World War One was a bunch of single cellular organisms fighting each other constantly, mm -hmm. competing over limited resources competing over limited space, competing over what they needed to survive. And the you can frame every major evolution as simply life discovering a better power projection technique to wield, basically a better weapon to wield over their compatriots, if you want to call them that. Mm in order to survive better in order to win the, this, what is effectively a power projection game. So, you know, like this life was born into this protocol that it doesn't have the option to unsubscribe from mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the protocol is physics. The way mm -hmm. physics works is if you project the most power in the most clever way, you win the right to set the state and chain of custody of resources. Like, you know, if, if I apply a force in Newton's against a mass and displace it, I've effectively energized the system. I've created power because I'm transferring energy per unit time. And if I do that against another bacteria, 
and I kill that bacteria or I take that bacteria, like I've set the state and chain of custody of the resources, whatever it is. Maybe. And you know, like people get salty about this. It's like, you don't have the option to not be eaten if you're eaten. Like you don't have the option to, it sounds violent. It is. You don't have the option not to bleed if your heart gets hit by a bullet. Right. Like we can, we can imagine a world where this power projection game wasn't played, but like, unless your heart doesn't bleed, if you get stabbed by a sword, then you tacitly comply to the power projection protocol of physics. It's a amoral, unforgiving. It doesn't care what you believe. Yes. Um, the, you know, bacteria don't have brains. <laughs> Right. They don't have eyeballs. They can't see or know what they're doing. And all they do is like, you know, get a pick, like go, you know, to the ocean and get a teaspoon of water and look at it under a microscope. It's not a friendly sight. It is brutal. (laughs) It is just straight up war. Yeah. Um, That's the, what I call the law of nature. It's a power projection game. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You can't unsubscribe from it unless you can somehow break the laws of physics. And so, you know, this is what you can observe. You can observe that animals will compete over resources. You can observe that they will project power in increasingly clever ways over each other to gain more resources. That the key evolutions that things made from the very beginning, like one of the first major evolutions was bacteria learned how to basically have flexible cellular membranes so they could subsume another cell and then like dissolve it and then take its energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, like the first weapon or one of the first weapons was eating <laughs> like cells evolved, life evolved the way to eat, to subsume yeah. their, you know, competitors and take their stuff like to take their property. Yeah. Was it immoral? What, have you ever felt bad? Have you ever looked at like a bacteria eating another bacteria? They don't even have like, they don't even have like nerve. They can't feel pain because pain requires more than one cell. Right. Right. Like, um, so eating was one, you know, they figured out, uh, what are they called? Filiae basically to grow little hairs that allows them to swim around in the water. Mm -hmm. That was a power projection technique. Mm-hmm. Now they can swim around, find new territory, lay claim to new territory, set a new mm-hmm. state and chain of custody of resources. They can swim around and find another bacteria and then use its eating to eat the thing. Mm-hmm. You have tails. They grow little tails, right? They can whip around faster. They can break other bacteria apart if they're powerful enough. Mm-hmm. You've get, you got like some of them were clever and figured out how to pull energy out of the sun. So you get bacteria or, or single celled life that uh, learn photosynthesis so they can capture more energy passively. If you have more energy, you can swim around further and eat stuff, right? Like, so mm-hmm. photosynthesis with a pow- was a power projection strategy. Mm-hmm. Um this is how the game works. You know, this is true because you can observe it happening. There's not like a lot of room for um, debating it. In right. my opinion. It, and, and then like 
one of the most gangster power projection techniques ever, like one of the best predatory tactics ever evolved by life was cooperation. Because if you want to project more power, sum it together. Two cells fighting together projects more power than one cell fighting alone. And what's interesting is this emerged 2 billion years ago. It wasn't intentional. Again, these things didn't have brains. They didn't have eyeballs. They couldn't see or know what they were doing. The first examples of life learning how to cooperate together was involuntary. They, there was a mutation that caused their cell membranes to get sticky. And so they were accidentally stuck together. So you can't like fight each other because you're stuck together. So you might as well eat other stuff, right? There's this clustering. Scientists can like, can replicate this experiment. You can get yeast, you can put them in a bowl. Eventually the mutation of sticky membrane will emerge. They'll start clustering. They'll start doing, forming all kinds of interesting clusters. Some will evolve to literally die. Why? Because that'll allow the, um, you know, that'll allow the cluster to break apart. So like this concept of aging was Hmm. an evolutionary thing, but that's not the only way you can cooperate involuntarily. The other and more common way is through what is called um, colonization. Mm -hmm. So if there's a limited amount of space and I'm a single cellular organism and I just park where I park, And then another one parks next to me, another one parks next to me, and we all park all next to each other. Sooner or later, we've captured the entire territory. If anyone else wants access to this territory, they have to fight us for it. All we do is simply make our cell membrane stronger so it's too hard to break us, and then we expand. Mm. That is a, you know, it sounds like a defensive-only strategy. It's not. That's a, Hmm. that's a power projection strategy colonization is how you is probably the most effective offensive strategy there is. We know this because 80% of the biomass on earth is a bunch of colonizers colonizing life. What are, what is colonizing life? It's plants, right? Like what did plants do? Plants figured out how to stick together to develop super strong cellular membranes and then expand and then just grow. They don't like try to maneuver around that much, at least not in any way compared to like, you know, the soft celled multicellular organisms, they just colonize. And, you know, are plants defensive only? Have you ever seen what happens if you put kudzu in the North Georgia mountains? Japanese kudzu in the North Georgia mountains. I have, I grew up in Tennessee and I've seen the kudzu out competing before us. Yeah. Does that look like a defensive only strategy? They're not attacking anything. Devouring it. (laughs) So it's the, uh, it's the strength um, in software. It's called the strangler pattern, Mm. but it's a colonization attack. You just focus yourself on having strong, cellular membranes and you grow and you grow more and you grow more and you climb up the tree. And then eventually like that tree's in the shade of your vine Mm -hmm. or, you know, that tree can't get any more water because all your roots, 
you have 10 times more roots in the ground than they do. You're absorbing all the water that they would normally absorb. Um, these are called invasive species. They're invading space, 3D space. So by the way, that is the most gangster and most effective <laughs> strategy that life has used. 80% of biomass on earth is all these colonization attacks happening constantly. Yeah. You walk around, all you see is green, unless you like, you know, live in the desert or something. So, <laughs> so it's important to understand these things. Um, cooperation was a power projection strategy. It was an effective one. It began involuntarily, but then to your point earlier, that's what survived. That's what worked. Mm-hmm. Like the other animals that didn't do these things, they're not around anymore because it didn't work. It wasn't an effective right. power projection strategy. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So Let me, you, you if talk- I can jump one inserted thing here. So what you just said is great because, and this is so fundamental, if it works, it survives, right? So it's like, okay, what is work? I think physics, the formula for work, force over distance. Uh, yeah, force over distance, right? So the ability to exert force across space, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so evolution itself, we could say, is the process of working towards greater work, like to be able to project more force across distance, to be able to harness more energy and channel it. Um, that's what these the strategy you're describing is colonizer strategy, right? It's out competing. The kudzu vine is getting out competing the tree for access to resources in terms of both sunlight and water. Yep. So it can then subsume those resources to project its own strategy further into the world. Yep. So this is what's so fundamental. It's like the, the, if the world is just this stack of patterns, basically that we have these strategies competing with one another and the one that effectively channels the most energy across distance wins over time. It works, it survives, it becomes dominant. Um, and so in that way, like you could almost say another way of saying how you quoted me earlier is we could say, biology is like God's technology in a way and not God, like guy in the sky, but God is this creative anti-entropic principle, 
right? The whole universe is in, increasingly entropic, but there's something about life that countervails it, to use one of your favorite words. Yeah. One of, my, one of mine as well. Take a drink. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so that's something very fun. It was like, there's this force, right? There's a force. And we said work is force over distance. So now it's maybe important for us to define force, which Newton's, this is Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, mass is also energy, right? Mass is frozen energy. E equals MC squared. So um, the, again, the acceleration of energy, right? The, we keep coming back to this fundamental point. So maybe you could speak to force a little bit. So not to get too, well, this is, this is your podcast. So of course we should get this deep. Oh yeah. Life is unique amongst everything else in the universe everything in the universe, the entropy of that thing is moving in one direction. Life is the thing, is the only thing that is attempting to reverse that entropy. Yes. It's going to fail, probably. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be fleeting. But that's kind of the beauty of it. And by by exerting more force by in, by finding more ways to use energy by projecting more power which is the time derivative of energy it enables life to be better at reversing the inevitable direction of entropy for a little longer uh, and at least on the case of earth for long enough for life to actually understand this and observe itself and say what i just said which is like the beauty of at least life on earth. Um, but it all, to your point, relies on our ability to, in my, so I, I say on our ability to project power, which is the time derivative energy. So to basically find clever ways of leveraging energy, it doesn't have to be through kinetic energy generation, which is effectively what force is. Um, you can do it different ways. Energy comes from different ways. It could be electromagnetic. It could be solar, which is electromagnetic, but it could be chemical. Um, but the point is energy is figuring out different ways to, or life is figuring out different ways to harness energy to reverse the inevitable course of entropy. It will fail, but damn it, we can have a good time along the way. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's important to know that now. The force is probably the most dominant way of achieving and kind of harnessing energy just because we live in a world that's highly, you know, kinetic and mass-based and has a lot of carbon in it. So makes sense. Um, and yeah, life, in my opinion, is effectively just a bunch of these self-assembling proteins figuring out how to apply force in increasingly clever ways. But the important thing is not just force itself. It's the application of that. It mm -hmm. is, what are you doing it for? Right. It is what energy is transferred for over time. Mm -hmm. What AKA what power, what are you using the power for and the power and everything that I can observe is being used to 
expand, Mm -hmm. to harness more resources, to colonize, to generate more energy. And that, and if you follow that whole trail, it's just self-assembling protein structures, learning more and more clever ways to project power, to set the state and chain of custody of the resources it needs to scale in increasingly effective ways. It's not, um, it's not a pretty sight, but this is the universe. Like, you know, there's like, there's this episode of Rick and Morty where like Morty sees something horrible, like just like the most horrible thing. And Rick's like, you know, breathe it in. This is God. Like, this is how the universe works. Like we're fighting the inevitable direction of entropy. It's not going to be an easy, it's going to be an uphill, unpretty thing. That's just how the law of nature works. If I could drop uh, one quote in here that I think just just sums it up beautifully. This is GK Chesterton. A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Um, I love that. Love that quote. And it's it. So this is what life is doing, right? Harnessing entropy to countervail. I'm sorry, harnessing energy to countervail entropy. And this all sounds a lot to me like entrepreneurship. It's what we're doing, right? We've got an idea, a strategy, something that hasn't been done before. Let me go test it against the uncertainty of the world. See if I can resolve some of that uncertainty cost effectively, right? Efficiently. Mm-hmm. If I do, then I can sell that strategy to others in the market, enriching myself in the process and making the market more productive, allowing it to channel greater energy uh, across space and time. So, so that's interesting because life basically evolved and entrepreneurial approach to like a a mechanism for performing entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. They eventually had these like pretty complex cells and, you know, they would build themselves according to DNA, right? Like the, what is DNA? DNA is just the instructions on how to build this self-assembling piece of proteins. Mm. But the life that lived the longest was the life that would deliver like mutating DNA was an evolutionary power projection success. Mm -hmm. Because if you just flip a random bit in your DNA, you'll, you'll end up growing a tooth like teeth. Mm -hmm. You'll end up like growing eyeballs. You'll end up, you'll also end up growing a bunch of crap. You don't need that won't make you succeed. Right. Right. You'll grow a cancer or something and you'll die. But that is entrepreneurship. The the whole role of like DNA flipping bits, mutations happening is life forcing itself to try what are effectively new ideas, try new things in an operational environment and seeing what succeed. And the result of that success is what we observe now. So like, you know, you you see a peak predator, you see a you see a tiger, for example. Yeah. Ty- what like tigers have eyeballs. That was a successful, successful, uh, you know, evolutionary strategy to have eyeballs. You can maneuver a lot more effectively. You see big muscles, you see sharp teeth. That wasn't, that was something that was evolved. Life yeah. figured out it, 
in multiple different paths, life right. figured out that teeth are an effective survival strategy. Yes. Life figured out that if I color my hair in a, you know, like striped pattern, it will allow me to increase the probability of kill of my prey because I can get closer to them before their eyeballs can see me. Yes. Their passive detectors can see me. So camouflage, eyeballs, teeth, brains themselves, these are all entrepreneurial successes in the free market of evolution. And that's what we see today. Those are the things that succeeded. Um, there's a lot of life that didn't succeed and you yeah. can, we, you, we can study their bones. Um, I think one of the best examples is, is you see this in entrepreneurship too, like when a really good entrepreneurial idea emerges, it's so discredited. Usually people don't appreciate how mm-hmm. important it is. People call it inefficient or stupid. People don't appreciate the need. Mm-hmm. So like a good example of that is uh, warm blood metabolism back in however many long time ago, I can't remember exactly, but like there was a point where the successful entrepreneurial strategy was to be a lizard, to be a cold blooded lizard, to receive all the heat you need passively through sunlight. Mm -hmm. So these dinosaurs would basically bask in the sun to heat their bodies. Um, they would, to, to get their energy, they would grow these weird little fin things out their backs, heat sinks mm-hmm. to collect basically solar panels. Mm-hmm. Plants figure this out too. Uh, it, it's just, you know, kind of a, a way to receive energy passively from this big ass fusion reactor in the sky that right. you should take advantage of. <laughs> so when the first animal, this like silly looking weasel thing figured out metabolism, figured out how to, it was a mutation, first of all. Yeah. Wasn't intentional, probably. You know, you take your, your, the energy that you get from your food and then you use metabolism to heat your blood through a chemical reaction rather than get it passively from the sun. Endothermic versus exothermic, right? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, who would do that? That's stupid. (laughs) Why would you go like, that's super inefficient. You're wasting the energy from your food to heat your own blood when you can just go outside and receive it for free from the sun. That's a stupid idea. Weasel, uh, you know, whatever that thing was called. Yeah. It's a stupid idea up until a point where the sun stops shining. When the asteroid hits 66 million years ago, and there's so much debris that there is no sun. And then 80% of life on earth, which optimized around receiving your energy passively from the sun freezes to death Mm -hmm. and dies. And that weasel suddenly becomes the success. Like the the weasel had, by the way, the weasel had to do this. I sound like sailor because I just said, by the way, (laughs) Um, the weasel couldn't go bask in the sun because it was a weasel. Yeah. In the world full of dinosaurs, it would get eaten instantly. Like right. you have to hide underground. If you're underground, you don't have a lot of sun. It's going to be cold. You're going to need to metabolize and warm your own blood if you don't want to freeze. The asteroid hits. There is no sun. All these badasses 
that discredited metabolism and warm blood die. Now that weasel can walk around and eat, you know, whatever's yeah. left and feast on the plants and the bugs. And, and then that weasel evolves into bigger and bigger things. And that's how you get mammals. Yeah. Like mammals wow. was like a badass um, entrepreneurial play that worked. That yes. was, if you had looked at it 66 million, 67 million years ago, you would have said, this is the stupidest thing. Why would you do this? But once the asteroid hits, once the environment changes, suddenly you're in a big deal. So I love the, uh, I love this tale. I don't know. It's not a tale. It's truth. It's what happened. But what's occurring to me here is the weasel was employing a decentralized energy harnessing strategy, right? The dinosaurs were centrally dependent on the sun shining every day. The day that that one thing stops working, the fragility of their entire strategy is exposed and they collapse. Whereas the mammal could get energy from all over. It could eat all kinds of things, right? It's omnivorous, presumably, and could convert that into chemical, chemical energy and heat itself endogenously. And that made all the difference, right? Once the sun actually did go out. So there's, there's, there's a lesson in there, I think, about the dangers of centralization, actually, right? Or putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Yeah. The dinosaurs put all their eggs in the basket of the sun, effectively. So basically, life succeeds because it hedges against tail risk. Mm -hmm. The reason why it hedges against tail risk is because it's constantly mutating at random. Yes. If the environment changes, the asteroid hits, the stuff that was, you know, in the center of the bell curve of the of the risk profile is going to go down, but life is constantly mutating. Life is constantly testing new strategies. It's got the tail risk covered. Yes. That will be the thing that succeeds. And, you know, this is something that helps people understand, like, because you see it's it sucks. You see, like, you know, people get sick and people get diseases and because of some mutation, right? Like, but this happens to all animals. They'll get tumors or something will go bad. Mm -hmm. That is life itself hedging against that tail risk it's got to constantly test new features in a production mm -hmm. environment all the time to make sure it can hedge mm -hmm. um which is pretty cool it's it, that is the entrepreneurial spirit right you're constantly yes. testing out new ideas to and because you do that once the environment changes you're more guaranteed to be the winner of the new environment we're talking about hedging tail risk. And we know this is something we do in socioeconomic reality, but it's something more fundamental than that, right? It's again, rooted in biological, physical reality. And I'd say we life or these survival strategies we're describing, which ultimately I love this connection too, that most fundamentally that's what life is. So the an organ, an organism, and an organization, these are all just survival strategies, right? Or per, perhaps power projection strategies even. There's, um, a, there's a, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that there's strategies that one of the things they do is hedge tell risk, as you've described, and they do that by expanding their optionality, right? Just like the weasel had all of a sudden had more options for energy derivation than just the sun. So it outcompeted the lizard in the event of a tell risk. 
Um, and so this, this idea of the entrepreneurial or the Darwinian pursuit of throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks, uh, it's really interesting because so then life is this structured survival strategy, but it needs, so it's fighting against randomness and entropy, but it has, has to have a little bit of randomness and entropy at the edges, mm-hmm. constantly experiment and make sure it's properly fitted to reality because reality changes all the time. So yeah. there's this interesting dance of like structure and randomness. And there's this sweet spot between the two is life. To really trip you out is, so we, you know, we started this conversation talking about work. There's a lot of work is just a way to mechanically produce energy, but you can produce energy in ways that don't involve force against mass. Mm -hmm. You can do it through electromagnetism, which is what the photosynthesis life figured out. You could do it through chemical energy production, which is what the weasel figured out. At the end of the day, what you need is what life needs is energy. If it doesn't have energy, it's not life. It's a virus. Like the difference Mm. between a bacteria and a virus is the virus isn't alive. It doesn't have like it can't sustain. But but what's crazy is back or viruses also mutate constantly. That's what we're worried about right now. Right. Mm -hmm. With the Omicron stuff. Like, so you don't even need to be living to play the constant mutation. Uh, You don't even need to be like a living thing. In fact, before single celled organisms were like a virus, just random molecules assembling themselves in random ways using random protein structures. And Somewhere along the way, those inanimate random molecule protein structures learn how to harness energy. And that's the distinction, the main one, as far as I can observe between the virus and the bacteria, the non-living thing and the living thing. So even you don't even have to, the point is you don't even have to be living to play this try random things and see what succeeds game. Sorry. What is that line then? What is that? What is the distinguishing feature between living virus and non-living? I'm sorry, living bacteria, non-living virus. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a biology guy. I just, the way I understand it is a virus is simply a set of molecules that can only reproduce inside of a host. Maybe mm. that's it. Maybe it's ability to reproduce. Mm. I can't, can't survive independent of the host. So it's like a parasite. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay. But once that random thing of, you know, once that random self-assembling structure of protein and molecules starts harnessing energy, starts swimming around, starts reproducing itself that way without a host independently, just floating around in water. Those are called bacteria. Gotcha. I probably butchered that definition. And if you have any (laughs) biologists listening, they're probably clawing their eyeballs out. Uh, Well, please throw it in the comments because this is something I just am thinking deeply about. 
because as we said earlier, right, the, uh, the technology is non-biological evolution. It's like, where do you draw the line between living and non-living? I'm, I'm yeah. really trying to figure that out and I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, from a first principles perspective, it's just a bunch of random molecules, all of it mm-hmm. in different forms. So the, the only, maybe the only difference is lot, maybe the, what we said before that life is the thing that reverses, tries to, or seeks to reverse the inevitable course of entropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows, but yeah, anyways, so, you know, like I say all this because power projection, the, is the key is like the thing that's always true, how the energy that is derived and transferred per unit time to achieve power projection can Mm -hmm. come from different sources. It can come from work, can come Mm -hmm. from force against mass, Mm -hmm. but it could also come from chemical, like the weasel figured out. Mm -hmm. It could also, you know, by the way, there was another major chemical related evolution that like humans should be pretty thankful for. Um, so for example, the weasel is now, you know, basically 80% of its predators are gone. It's free to walk around and roam the surface. Uh, to feast on whatever it can feast on. It gets bigger and bigger. You look at the average biomass of a mammal after the asteroid hit and it just takes off. These things get bigger and bigger, bigger. Multiple different mutations happen that make it more effective at projecting power. A big one is like opposable thumbs. That was a pretty, mm-hmm. that was a pretty sweet entrepreneurial idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, allows you to climb up trees. There's a lot of trees around because remember, those are the colonialists. Those, you know, mm-hmm. those are the real um, successful power projectors. Yeah. So you can, with thumbs, you can climb trees. You can break sticks apart. You get a whole bunch of these mammals that just swing around in trees all the time, um, picking the fruit from the trees and doing all that stuff. And then, um, Somewhere along the way, those those opposable thumb multicellular mammal creatures start to like notice, you know, some trees catch on fire because the lightning Mm. hits them. Mm -hmm. If I, uh, what if I like break off a stick and I capture that fire? And what if I put a bunch of sticks together to maintain that fire burning this like fire stuff is a pretty useful way of generating more energy. It's like pretty useful energy source. It's very, very meta because it's, you're now harnessing energy as a tool itself. Yeah. You've captured energy itself. Yeah. And then a lot, like a lot of these opposable thumb wielding mammal things took that a step further. They're like, how's like, what if I could start this myself? What, what if I don't need to find a forest fire and capture it that way? what if I could just rub these sticks together and like start fire? Yeah. There were a lot of different species that figured this out. It wasn't just sapiens. We weren't alone. In fact, this was well before sapiens even emerged. Um, There, and in, so once you wield fire itself, that's interesting. Do you know why? What what do you, why do you think, um, what do you think is the big deal of being able to start and harness fire? Why do you think that's useful? There's two things that jump to mind here. 
Um, what, look, look, I'll name them right after that. I just want to reinforce a point you just made. It's like, it's one thing to harness the fire. It's another thing to realize you can create the fire through a technique, mm-hmm. right? That we can codify as knowledge. We, and I'm not saying semantic knowledge. It's someone was saying, hey, you rub two sticks together to start a fire, but procedural knowledge. You can show someone how to start a fire. And then that knowledge starts to propagate through human beings. So now not only have we harnessed energy as a tool, but we have harnessed the procedure or the technique to harness energy as a tool effectively on command. So I just wanted to say how powerful that is. Again, just opposable thumbs, right? Just developed thumbs. So there starts to be this interface between thumbs and, and cerebral development. So the two points I'll, I think about fire being important, one, it was like a form of pre-digestion in a way to actually start cooking food. We could liberate more macronutrients through cooking, which as I understand it, freed up our digestive resources to be allocated more towards brain development. So we, by, by virtue of pre-digesting food, we lightened the load on the digestive system, which let the our internal structure allocate more of its resources to bigger brains, which clearly had a positive feedback loop. The other thing that I've heard is that fire allowed us to, I mean, kill unmass, right? We could just burn a whole forest to the ground and then just go and take whatever we want, right? All the, the fruit and animals and food and wood and materials, we could just clear land, you know, and it was, it was a wrecking ball, I guess, something like that. I'm honestly kind of disappointed. Most people don't get it. <laughs> and I, and we get, I get to play this like game because they'll be like, oh, it keeps them warm. Or, oh, it helps them fend off predators. But no, so this is a, this is something that we relearned in. So I'm an astronautical engineer. I uh, was trained by the Air Force and, and I got a graduate, graduate degree in astronautical engineering. So you learn a lot about how rockets work. And somewhere along the way, so a rocket works is, the way a rocket works is pretty simple. It's just a controlled explosion. You take fuel, you take oxidizer, you set it on fire. You just try to point the explosion in one direction instead mm-hmm. of in every direction. But somewhere along the way, people figured out, hey, if we create something called a pre-burner, we take the same fuel, same oxygen, we put it in the pre-burner, we preheat it in this pre-burner, mm. and then we take that mixture and then we put that in the combustion chamber, you unlock a little bit more energy mm. at virtually no penalty for size, weight, and power. You can get more thrust and um, effectiveness out of your your energy or your engine. So pre-burners are effective. So somewhere along the way, once we figured out how to harness and start fire, these animals figured it out. They figured out the same thing. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a pre-burner. You can <laughs> pre-burn your meat, by the way. How did you get that meat in the first place? Through the projection of power, mm-hmm. through the clever projection of power. Or whatever you're cooking, and so you, yeah, to your point, yeah, exactly. You pre you pre digest it, meaning you pre burn it, meaning you break up and loosen the molecular bonds, meaning you can pull out more energy once it hits your stomach at virtually no cost to size, weight, and power. It doesn't take any more effort, and you just get like an explosion of extra energy per every unit of food that you consume. So. Yeah. And I've heard the, I've, I understand the second one, but the first one's interesting because now we're talking about, we're blurring the lines between 
what is an evolutionary development right. and what is a technological development. Yeah. And the, the lines get blurred even further because it wasn't because the invention of fire, the harnessing and starting of fire actually had a physiological effect on the animals that wielded it. Yes. You have so much extra energy now just lying around Yes, that it can go to much more energy intensive processes. So if a rocket, like if you add a pre-burner to a rocket engine, what, what do you get? You get the ability to put more payload on the top of your rocket. Yeah. If you add a pre-burner, you know, if you start cooking your food, what do you get? You get an ability to add more payload on the top of your head. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you, we were able to put that energy in the most energy intensive stuff, which is thinking. So you see the direct, because of this technology, it had a physiological effect. The techno, the fire wielding animals had an explosive growth in the prefrontal cortexes in their brains. They could think right. a lot more. They had a lot more energy to do the thinking. Yeah. And that created this whole new assortment of humanoids. Yes. You had all of these fire starting species, you had the erectus, you had Neanderthals, you had, okay, there's like dozens of them. Um, you had sapiens, but then like 3000 or sorry. So that's like, you know, we're now at about 200,000 years ago, some point around 30,000 years ago, the, the trail goes completely cold on everything but sapiens all these other humanoid fire starting prefrontal cortex creatures disappear you, oh. the trail is completely cold and all that's left is sapiens so like what happened and at the same time you know you carbon date the cave paintings and they're all around you know around the same time frame so this gets back to like what was the original gangster way of like the original gangster predatory tactic that single cellular organisms learned not intentionally it was cooperation and so of you know the the main theory is of the humanoid species of the ones wielding their prefrontal cortexes sapiens were the first to use their big brains to start developing abstract thought that they united around for the, for the function of cooperation. They basically were the only humanoid species that was able to conquer what is called Dunbar's number. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have these big beefy prefrontal cortexes, but there's still a cognitive limit around the number of names and faces I can remember. Like, mm -hmm. You know, it's still a CPU. It has limitations. You only have so much random access memory. You only have so much memory. And uh, and that's a problem because that means you can only scale your cooperation to the to the limit of number of people you can trust or you you know. So all these humanoid species had tribes. They were running around 300 people deep, mm -hmm. right? But humans or sapiens started figuring out, okay, if, if I believe the same thing this other sapien believes, if we believe the same thing, I don't have to actually right. know who that person is or trust them. I just have to trust that they believe the same thing I believe. Yeah. And so you can go back and you can see the cave paintings and you can see humans starting to form these existential abstract ideas. 
they're starting to trace their hands, trace different hands. They're starting to conceptualize there's something more. We, mm-hmm. there's something greater than ourselves. You know, you, you start to have this abstract thought that humans united around. And once they did that, they conquered mm-hmm. Dunbar's number. They figured out how to scale. If you believe in the same idea, then mm-hmm. you can k- scale cooperation beyond the cognitive limit of your prefrontal cortexes. And they figured it out first. And the best way to project power is to sum it together. To project more power is to sum it together. So if I can get a thousand sapiens to believe in the same thing, even though they don't have the cognitive capacity to actually know each that many people or trust them, then I can roll up to another tribe of Neanderthals mm-hmm. who are still only 200 people deep. And despite the fact that they're stronger and despite the fact that they have better rational thinking probably because they had much bigger prefrontal cortexes. They didn't figure out abstract shared abstract thought like we did. And so um, that's when the next, you know, mass extinction event happens. Yeah. Because after that point, things get ugly. And if I I could uh, jump in, if this is a transition point, I just want to try and what you just said was so beautiful and profound. I want to try and, Echo it back a little bit. So we, <laughs> it's crazy. Posable thumbs, climbing, right? Gets us to fire as we laid out. There's a couple of other things here that I think are important that also, um, you know, pointing and the opposable thumb, it gave us the ability to particularize and gesture. And to manipulate the natural environment in very specific ways. So it lends its, it's almost like the hand is the ultimate multi-purpose tool when you have the opposable thumb, because mm-hmm. you get a very fine particularization of your natural environment, which lends itself to tool making, pointing, you know, across distance. And as you, you made the point, like, okay, we harness fire, we're considering broader spheres of space and time. This is leading, this is developing the prefrontal cortex, right? The prefrontal cortex is for dealing with large distances or thinking across space and time. So we're feeding this thing. We're feeding the growth of this strategy. And from that percolates up concept, right? We, we leave, we leave space and time. We go into conceptual space or abstract space mm-hmm. and we begin engineering these useful fictions religion, Mm -hmm. morality, wisdom, tradition, common belief. And all of this is effectively doing is establishing a common pattern among a larger set of minds so that we, we can scale uh, in terms of of concerted action, right? We can just believe the same thing versus having to have these tight knit like family, like bonds within 150 person unit. All of a sudden we can just Oh, they're, they're a Christian. We're all under the Christian flag or whatever it is. So this, again, back to power, this radically amplifies our ability to collaborate. And what is the, this is, this is a big wake up call to me. What's the root word of collaborate? Labor. It's right there in the middle of the word. It's literally the ability to work, right? So when we collaborate, this is the, economic division of labor. We create, there's a, uh, 
an emergent property, a synergistic feedback. We're more than the sum of our parts. We, it's a positive sum game. However you want to say this, like we become more powerful acting in concert than we are in isolation. This is the bottom of economics, basically. And then the further thing, and this is where we're at today, I think, is it okay, the, the book Sapiens does a great job kind of crystallizing this whole narrative. Uh, we are dominant in the world because we can tell and believe these stories we call useful fictions, such as mm -hmm. money, the nation state, civil liberties, whatever. So now it seems to me the battleground among humans, at least, is who gets to dictate that useful fiction? Who gets to make the rules and create the stories that mm -hmm. we abide by? to coordinate this ultimate source of power, which is human collaboration. Yep. And that's where we're at today. It's like, which useful fiction is most useful or most true or best yep. or optimal? And then, which leads us right into Bitcoin. But um, yeah. I don't know if we're ready for that. I'll throw it back to you, but I just wanted to. Yeah. So you, you know where I'm going. <laughs> um, yeah. You just like, spoiler alert, right? So um yeah, I mean, like the cool thing about sticks are they burn effectively. They can hold fire well. You don't see a lot of things that don't have opposable thumbs wielding sticks very easily. Like a dog can hold a stick, but he can't rub the stick together to create fire. He can't break sticks apart and manipulate, you know. So, like the the reason why thumbs worked out great and hands worked out great is because it allowed creatures to handle sticks. If you can handle sticks, you can handle fire. If you can handle fire, you can get, you can pre-burn your food. If you can pre-burn your food, you can grow a prefrontal cortex. If you can grow a prefrontal cortex, you can start to think abstractly. You can start to share ideas. You can start to park your ideas in other people's prefrontal cortexes and once you have mastered the ability to park ideas in other people's prefrontal cortexes, you have mastered cooperation, you have mastered collaboration, you have mastered the power projection game, at least insofar as it's derived from work, from mechanical energy. Because if you can get people to collaborate, you're effectively summing power projection to create something massive. Mm -hmm. And humans figured this out. Humans use this tool to be humans, to be predators, just like all other animals are. We, we slaughtered everything with this new capability. Our ability to co cooperate at massive scales is the reason why we we run we, shit. yeah like we go to the here, I keep on saying this people it's like mind boggling how freaking brutal humans are yeah, Homo sapiens were with this new tool with this tool of collaboration of shared abstractions we go like on the weekend to museums to admire the bones of all the mammals that we slaughtered into extinction because you know, they represented threats like, oh, cool. Look at that woolly man, woolly man. That's neat. That's neat. Look at that saber tooth tiger. That's neat. There was like all kinds of ox and giant moose things. And, and then at, you know, somewhere around like 10,000 years ago, 
we were like, why do we keep on wasting our energy, like hunting down these massive mean oryx to eat them? Why don't we just hold them in captivity? Why don't we just mm-hmm. capture them? And then why don't we just eat the mean ones? We'll just murder the mean ones and we'll breed the nice ones. And we do that for 10,000 years. And you have effectively genetically enslaved an animal into becoming passive, into becoming non-aggressive. And then you get cows. Like if you you capture a predator and then you genetically enslave it into a, a genetic prison where it doesn't even have the genes to put up a fight, you get a cow. that you can then just send to a butcher and you can kill it and eat it without putting up a fight. That's what a cow is. That's what humans did. By the way, if you do it to a wolf, you get a dog, right? Like if you capture a bunch of wolves and then you kill the mean ones and then you breed the nice ones, eventually you get a creature that is like your servant, Yes. Like I, I, you know, we, we know, I love dogs. I love dogs. Mm-hmm. I agree that dogs are our best friends. Dogs were genetically modified to be our best friends. Yes. Like the yeah. reason why dogs love humans so much is because those are the ones that survived. <laughs> <laughs> like it's dark, but this it's is ar- artificial selection, right? It is. It, l- let me put it this way. I'm a big fan of wiener dogs. I just think wiener dogs are the cutest <laughs> thing. I have a Pinterest board full of wiener dogs just adorable. You put a wiener dog in the Siberian wilderness with a bunch of wolves. Like, do you think that thing is going to survive? Like I love wiener dogs. I will be the first to admit they're an abomination of nature created by humans because we're gangster as hell. If you want to, because we're brutal. Yeah. If you want to like, you know what, know what the peak predator is on an alien planet, just look for the thing that grew its own pets Right. To worship it. That's, right. you know, that's a pretty gangster. It's not, we aren't, I don't think we're the peak predator. I think of the mammals we are, but, you know, remember 80% of biomass are plants. Yeah. Um, we are less than like 1%. So at least in terms of mammals, we have, we're just brutal. And it's important yeah. to know why. And the main one is because of that cooperation thing. Yes. <laughs> so power. So it's, it, it, so just to reiterate how, powerful this is is like we have fashioned a psychotechnological infrastructure that you you know the Yuval Hararian useful what does he call them imagined orders we call them a useful fiction an ideological superstructure whatever you want to call it it's just an imagined order that we share and through that apparatus that contrivance it is an amplifier of human energy because mm-hmm. now we can trade, collaborate, specialize, unify our movements, our efforts, our thinking. And we just completely run over the world, completely like super dominant species of the world up to the point of having, you know, breeding wolves into winter dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We weaponized it. Yeah. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. And so if you're a human and you can be the one to, plant your ideal or your abstraction and get a bunch of people to agree to it, then you're super powerful. And mm-hmm. and, and I, when I keep on saying power, I literally mean joules per second. Like yeah. I'm talking physics here. Yeah. Let's that, unpack that actually. So the forms of power, 
because there's a lot of people think when you say someone's powerful or it's all about power, they're typically thinking political power, which has its roots in physical power, but there's also the pure physics definition you're describing. So maybe you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So all my arguments are going to be first principles. They're going to be physics rooted. When I talk power, I literally mean joules per second. Like you can generate those joules in different ways. You can generate them through electromagnetism. You can generate them through chemical like the weasel did. Mm -hmm. You can harness it through chemical, which is what we did with fire. You can do it through work. So kinetic. But at the end of the day, you were just transferring energy per unit time. It's just mm -hmm. joules per second. Right. There's, you know, people get that confused with like, uh, you know, maybe the political definition of power and the sources of that. But in my opinion, those are still like, what is political power? The political power is just being able to plant ideas in other people so mm -hmm. that they steer their joules per second in the direction that you want it to be steered in. It's mm -hmm. still just summing joules per second. Like, you know, cause like I studied power and negotiation, there's a lot of ways you can mm -hmm. use the non-physics definition of power. Being attractive is a source of power. Mm -hmm. More people are going to listen and follow you and maybe transfer their joules per second in the direction that you want it to be mm -hmm. because you're attractive, mm -hmm. but it's still at the end of the day, joules per second, like right. that's it. That's all it takes. Yeah. And this speaks to fiat perhaps like and when we say commonly in Bitcoin, Bitcoin world, we say fiat, we immediately think fiat currency, but it's not that necessarily by fiat means, you know, by decree, because I said, so someone in a position of authority said this thing needs to happen. So it happened. So even that it's an amplification of power, right? It doesn't take me a lot of physical power to project my speech or write a law or whatever. But so long as I am in a position of authority within the hierarchy that constitutes that organization, I'm now amplifying this little bit of energy I put into writing the bill or saying the thing, and it mobilizes human action. Right. Yes. So, so Biden can write, a, he could sign a bill today or what, I don't know, whatever he would do, you know, better than I, he's the commander in chief. So he could press the button and say, go blow up this city. So there's little exertion of power would then translate into this huge exertion of physical power that actually blows up the city. So again, it's an, this even political power kind of grounds out in physical reality, I guess is the point I'm getting at. So this gets to the next big, I guess, technology, you could call it that. Mm -hmm. Humans are unique compared to other animals because insofar as I know, humans are the only ones that write laws. Mm -hmm. And so what is the law of nature is simple. The law of nature is those who project power in the most effective way earn the right to set the state and chain of custody of resources. That's it. And it's brutal. Like lions, look what happens when a when a new lion emerges and overthrows the other lion, it's not a pretty thing. Mm -hmm. Like Simba, what happens to Simba is not what happens in the Lion King. It's bad. Yep. Go look at what happens when like a starving, what happens, you know, what happens to the baby squirrel when the mama squirrel is starving? It ain't pretty. Yeah. Those who project the most power 
in the most effective way, earn the right, set the state chain of custody of all resources to include energy, to include whatever. Um, this is the game. So, but what humans figured out is like, you know, pretty much ain't nobody got time to fight over every single thing. Like <laughs> that's pr pretty much what they figured out. It's like, we don't need to go to war over who gets to earn over every sandwich. <laughs> yes, exactly. Over every sandwich. So what law is, is effectively a surrogate power projection game. Legal power is okay. Listen, Mike, he, you know, I could destroy you at any time because, you know, my name is Robert Breedlove and I have much larger upper body strength than you. So we don't need to go into this fighting game. Let's just create a surrogate and let's just call it and let's write it down. And guess what? I'm the king. I, what I say goes, just follow what I say and I don't have to kill you. You can continue to live, right? So like these God kings emerged, but it's still like all law, like the thing that predates all law is the military that exerts the power to yes. establish the rule of law, yes. right? Like, you know, the, the American revolution started 10 years before the constitution. Right. Everything is derived, like the state and chain of custody of everything to include rules of law is derived from power projection. The rule of the law is the thing that happens after we've won the war and yeah. established ourselves as the dominant thing. Right. So, you know, what is law? What is the social contracts that humans develop themselves? They're just a surrogate to war because ain't nobody got time to fight over every sandwich. <laughs> um, and by the way, like if your rule of law, like if you get old, so, you know, my name's Bobby Breedlove. I, I work out. I have the you know best power projection capability. I'm going to call myself a God King. I'm, you know, appointed to my position over you through divine, whatever, whatever our shared abstraction BS is. And, um, but the problem is you have like problem about God Kings is they tend to die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then what happens? Okay. Who, well, crap. What's the new rule of law going to be now that our God has died? Yeah. And then you, what do you do? You revert back to the traditional original gangster law of nature, power projection game. Right. And then whoever wins that probabilistic power projection game gets to define the new rule of law. You do that yes. over and over again. You get God Kings, you get Kings, you get nation States. So it's just the same power projection game that's been played for 4 billion years. It's just humans create a surrogate in between the mate, the larger power projection, real stuff. Yeah. And then we compete. And so I want to emphasize today. Sorry to interrupt. But I just want to emphasize one thing you're saying here is that a recurrent pattern across human history is human beings fighting over fighting for control of the rulemaking apparatus. Right. It's so a shared abstraction. Who, yeah. Who gets to make the rules of the game? We're all going to play. And to be able to make the rules of the game we're all going to play is, in effect, the power to win in perpetuity. Because if I make the rules, then guess what? The rules are always going to serve my individual self-interest. And this becomes, yeah. it gets bigger than that, right? As we decentralize sovereignty from an individual to 
an aristocracy to a presume, you know, a representative democracy, et cetera. But um, I think that's the key point is that like, if the rules, this is talking about the mutability or changeability of rules. If they're mutable and changeable, we fight over them to control them, but nobody's fighting to control the rules of physics or the laws of physics because nobody can change them. We just all yeah. play by those rules. But within, within the nesting of those rules, we're trying to control the rules we can control. So it just, I think that will come back to the importance of Bitcoin later. What are laws but shared abstractions? What is a religion but a shared abstraction? What is the symbol of currency but a shared abstraction? These are all just ideas that exist only in the prefrontal cortexes of Homo sapiens. No other animal can recognize what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. What is language but a shared idea living in the prefrontal cortexes of Homo sapiens? Mm -hmm. If you can control these shared abstractions, remember cooperation, these shared abstractions, that's the key to power projection. That's the key to winning the game that we, none of us can unsubscribe from. Physics is physics. If a human stabs you in the heart, you're going to die. Um, so like you better learn this power projection game if you want your shared abstraction to be the one that everyone uses. Yes. And so history is just a ledger of property ownership written by the people who win the power projection competition. Written in the Sounds blood pretty of the similar. <laughs> exactly. Like, Sounds pretty similar to another protocol, right? Like you engage in a bunch of power projection competition and whoever wins gets to write the ledger. Hmm, sounds a lot like mining. Um, Natura non falcit saltis. Nature doesn't make leaps. The tech, like you, you don't escape from this game. This is how you achieve permissionless control over resources. I don't need your permission to control this resource. So like, let's say, you know, we genetically enslave aurochs into cows. We hire someone to kill the cow for us because we don't want them to be bothered by that. They throw that cow, they throw that steak in between you and me. By the law of nature, whose steak is that? To be determined. It's probably yours. <laughs> depends, depends how clever you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I can now. That's that's the best shot I have, right? It's your steak. Um, now I have a gun. You don't have a gun. Whose steak is it? <laughs> Definitely yours. Right? Let, let me put it this way. I don't have to ask your permission to eat that steak if I've got the gun. Right. You don't have to ask my permission to eat that steak if we have to, you know, like Fist do the old fashioned way. Yeah. <laughs> so, and all animals do this. You throw that same steak into a pack of wolves. Who eats the steak? Whose steak is it? I'll They've already it. established whose steak it is. Oh. They establish that game constantly. They're yeah. constantly snapping at each other. They're constantly determining who the alpha is, what the pecking order is. The pecking order is literally like the state of custody, the yes. chain and state of custody of whatever resources that you've discovered. Right. 
It is a existential necessity for life to establish pecking order. And it's no coincidence that life succeeds if the strongest, right? The thing that is most capable of reversing entropy, the inevitable direction of entropy, if the strongest wolf gets to eat the steak, the strongest wolf will survive. Life has the best shot at surviving. If, right, right? like that's just how it works. It's not, it's not anything like against it. Even that that wolf pack, they have this proto morality or proto useful fiction where instead of fighting over every stake, they already know the hierarchical structure. Yeah. Fascinating. So, So what's interesting is they're actually putting collaboration at the apex of their value hierarchy, right? It's like, no, we're not going to kill each other over this stake because we might need all of us tomorrow to bring down a buffalo. It's instinctive. Yeah. So they will fight each other to the point where one wolf is pinned on its back and the alpha has its mouth around the jugular Mm -hmm. and the alpha will not bite. And they stop. It it knows instinctively, I need this wolf in my pack to project more power to survive. Right. If you read, there's an entire book on this about humans. Sa- Sapiens have the same instinct. It's called right. On Killing. It's written by an uh, army lieutenant colonel. Sapiens have the same instinct. It, you have to actually overcome your instinct to kill another homo right. sapien. A, a lot of times, if you've ever been in just like a natural fist fight, I have, you <laughs> actually pull your punches instinctively. Like, if, especially if you're winning and you're, you know, like you're about to break this dude's nose like you will instinctively pull your punch because there's something in your biology that says, I need this human alive. If we're going to like survive longer, yeah, you know, humans have figured out a way to train themselves out of that instinct better than the other animal. 